light years passing while in stasis are supposed to go by unnoticed by the traveler. I've always felt like I could perceive each parsec like a grain of sand in an old dusty hourglass. Time, as a concept turned on its head, creeping out of your subconscious mind from a passing reality to a domination of your senses. Always grateful when the seal is released, I greeted the medical technician checking my vitals. A few more lines of gray in his hair since I last saw him. They wake these guys up in shifts as the company ship drops off human assets at their various destinations. This always reminds me of Earth for some reason. I abandoned any sort of notion of family and friends many years ago. I don't remember how long exactly, unless you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, making a life in the limited space of the home world was a daunting prospect. Being a colonizer, or in my case, an engineer worker, would set you up quite nicely if you have the aptitude for it. I moved from the stasis capsule to an adjacent dressing room. The medical teams had set aside my shipboard uniform. Civilians didn't wear any sort of true rank insignia. We were granted a patch, noting our profession and our hyperlight transfers. A fourth star had been neatly sewn under a picture of a gear and wrench. A holdover from older mechanical engines that didn't incorporate biological components. Being an engineer was sometimes more like being a biologist for at least the last 30 or 40 years. Earth date, April 11th, 2152, showed on the monitor in front of me. Flashing text gave a brief review of my mission objectives. This was helpful for new workers. The effects of stasis on the body were disorienting. Like anything though, the human body has an uncanny ability to adapt. I turned from the screen, knowing full well the objectives of this particular journey. Remote monitoring of the company facility on MLS-34 indicated power failure in multiple cells. Losing one or more cells wasn't always a catastrophic emergency. It did, however, have a tendency to knock out different systems. In this case, communications had gone silent, which always irritates the company bigwigs. I guess they hate missing a chance to micromanage their assets. MLS-34, or moderately life-sustaining, corporate science jargon, is located on the moon of a gas giant orbiting a nearby red dwarf star. Their crappy designations always bothered me. Moderately life-sustaining. Yeah, that may be fine for bacteria and some forms of algae, but try giving a human being sort of enough air, or not quite enough water. Suffice it to say, full seal survival suits are required unless the facility is on an Earth-like or fully terraformed planetoid. Making my way to the engineering deck to check in, I looked up and down the corridor of the freighter I'd been assigned to. This is always interesting because you get loaded into stasis off-ship, so this is my first time getting to see the hunk of junk they'd loaded me onto. The company made much of the hull out of a modern equivalent of titanium. Anything heavier and they could never get it out of some of the denser atmosphere, high gravity environments. This particular metal had been adapted to the hazards of space, reflecting ambient radiation and protecting the crew from small debris and meteors. The ships were not constructed for comfort though, by any stretch of the imagination. A model of function over form, an ingenious design of Spartan simplicity, looking down you could observe the inner workings of the machine through the metal grating serving as a walkway. The engineering deck was one of the few that had viewports out into space. Like everything on this ship, these also served a specific purpose. Sensors could fail, 
and monitors could lose power. This one feature allowed us to visually survey the engines in operation. There was an unfortunate tendency to rely too heavily on technology. The company recognized the importance, in rare circumstances, to use your own eyeballs to evaluate a hardware problem. Stopping for a moment to observe, I was always amazed at the hyperlight effect on the stars. Streaming past the viewport almost lazily, it almost had a seasick-inducing effect, which was the closest analogous comparison I could think of. Space itself seemed to warp and bend if you looked closely, as if faster-than-light travel gave you a periscope view into the ever-expanding infinite of the universe. I was pulled back to reality by the chief engineer, who summoned me to the main terminal. The diagnostics flashed on the screen as I took a seat next to two other crew members that had also been woken from stasis. The briefing began with many of the basic details I learned before stasis. What I had not previously been briefed on was how we were reaching the moon's surface. Sometimes, these details were better to iron out as we approached the destination. Weather patterns, hardware malfunctions, and any other number of issues could come up during the journey. For this mission, the company requisitioned a military shuttle. These shuttles were very sturdy, and I'd been transported on one before. What wasn't normal about this mission was that they had fitted it with a full armament. My crewmates were also atypical for my assignments. Two combat vets would be accompanying me on the trip down to the facility and remain stationed there as security. They took vigorous notes on the ship's armaments and the equipment they would be transporting to the surface for their ongoing mission. None of this bothered me, though I was most accustomed to being partnered with other engineers, or at least crewmates that had tangential skill sets so that we could complement each other. I could repair the cells at the facility, but I didn't have much to offer these military types in terms of combat prowess. The briefing wrapped up and I returned to my quarters. Shuttle launch would be first thing in the morning. Even though I was an experienced hyperlight traveler, the recovery from stasis still took a toll on the body and mind. I curled up in the sheets of the bunk and fell asleep almost immediately. A twisting nightmare of sand and fire haunted my dreams. An unquenchable thirst seemed to overwhelm my senses. I tried to look around for water, but was stricken blind, unable to move due to my legs stuck in mud up to my knees. I reached out, grasping for anything that could relieve my dry throat. I fell out of my bunk onto the hard deck floor of my quarters. Getting up with a grunt, I went to the sink and drank heavily from the faucet. I splashed water on my face and looked in the mirror. It took a moment for my dry eyes to focus on the image in front of me. Glancing to my right, I saw a clock reading 0200 hours. We'd be launching in four hours from now. I rubbed my eyes, trying to get the thoughts of the nightmare out of my head. Another couple hours of sleep were needed for this shuttle trip in the morning. Meeting my crewmates in the shuttle bay, they had apparently arrived earlier than I did. Already suited up and were checking armaments while I made my way into the environment suit bay. A team of medical staff were there to assist me into my suit. The suits themselves were comfortable, lightweight enough to move around without much notice of the equipment. However, the process of putting it on was generally uncomfortable. Several sensors to monitor vitals for the central computer were implanted into the arms. The body also needed to adjust to the gas mixture pumped through the system's respiratory modules, which calibrated to each individual user's needs. After suffering through the suit-up process, I made my way to the shuttle where my crewmates were waiting on me. 
they had loaded several large containers marked with volatile labels, undoubtedly munitions they were bringing in support of their security duties. They simply gave me a nod as I boarded the shuttle and took a rear seat. Knowing nothing about piloting one of these ships, I moved out of the way of the two soldiers who obviously knew what they were doing. We were given clearance to lift off and exit the shuttle bay. The freighter was dropping from hyperlight travel momentarily for us to make our departure. As the bay doors opened, I peered through the front windows of the shuttle to see the blackness of space speckled with stars. We pulled out of the shuttle bay with a jolt and into the free space away from the ship. Though I couldn't see it, our freighter transport would have immediately closed the bay doors and resumed their hyperlight speeds, continuing the transport mission to the numerous company colonies requiring personnel. The shuttle was piloted to an entrance trajectory appropriate to the atmosphere we were about to enter. Two soldiers adeptly handled the computer controls, plotting a course calculation at high speeds. Piloting anything in the depths of space required precise and rapid calculation. Even aided by a computer, it took a human to validate the conclusions reached to ensure safety. As we entered the atmosphere, a heavy turbulence began to shake the cabin of the shuttle. This was not uncommon, especially when entering denser atmospheres. However, something about the rattling and shaking seemed excessive. As if to confirm my worries, I could see the pilots move back to the computer calculating the planetary entrance to evaluate what was going on. In the next few moments, several disastrous events occurred at once. An explosion to my rear in the engine section occurred rocking our ship into a spiraling descent to the planetary surface. The disaster sent several shards of superheated metal toward the front of the cabin. The heavy seats of the shuttle normally would have protected the pilots. However, they had moved out of a sitting position to lean in front of the main computer. For only a split second, I saw several pieces of the damaged ship fly at their heads and bodies. After this, main power of the ship went offline. I could no longer see my fellow crewmates to confirm if they were okay. The main viewport at the front of the shuttle showed us to be in a nauseating tailspin toward the rocky planet's surface. Alarms of all kinds whistled from every computer panel on board. There was nothing I could do about any of this. The failed trajectory into the atmosphere combined with the spinning motion created a force on my body which kept me from moving. All I could do was sit and wait for the inevitable. Like with all systems on these ships, though, backup routines struggled to come online and correct the malfunction. Cabin lights flickered back on, and I could see my companions had been lethally sprayed with shrapnel from the ship. Blood spattered the main controls, and they hung in their seats, bodies moving left and right at the whim of the out-of-control descent our ship was taking. I felt a series of vibrations below me as emergency thrusters kicked on to try to level our entrance. This had the positive effect of leveling off the tailspin we were taking, but too late to prevent the high-speed landing that was about to happen. I could see out of the main viewport, the ground whipping by at several hundred miles per hour. Air brakes, including a full reverse of thrusters kicked on automatically by the emergency systems, which threw me forward in my seat restraints. The ground crept closer and closer. When we impacted, everything went black. I have no further memory of the shuttle's final crash landing on the planet. Opening my eyes, dim light creeped into my vision. Everything was blurry. Everything hurt. I slowly moved my arms and legs, 
noting that everything was still in place. My environment suit had automatically engaged my helmet to create the artificial atmosphere within my suit. As my vision cleared, the digital display of my vitals were flashing on the face shield. The trauma of the crash had caused contusions where my body met the seat and restraints. The suit otherwise did not indicate any serious head or bodily injury as a result of the crash. Breathing a sigh of relief that I was going to live, I checked other suit statistics and saw that my suit's breathable air was at 22%. A feeling of panic evaded my senses at the sight of the number. Having no idea how long I had been knocked out from the crash, it must have been at least a day, maybe two, with the resources to have depleted to this degree. I reached up for the release of the seat restraints, muscles complaining from soreness as a result of the crash. I felt the belts give way, and I was released, able to move around the ship. The hull had been breached, and the front view ports had been completely destroyed, leaving an opening into the harsh MLS environment. The pilot on the left must have been ejected from the shuttle because they were not in their seat, and I could not see them anywhere outside in the landscape of sand and rock. Much of the equipment that had been brought along had also been lost as the shuttle tore itself apart. The other crew member on my right was still in their seat, slumped over, undoubtedly killed by the injuries they received in the explosion. Their suit had automatically released a sealing agent where they had shrapnel pieces thrown through the outer layer of mesh that comprised the suit's exterior. There were armors that could have protected this person, deflected or withstood the projectiles. However, these heavy armor pieces were not typically worn while in transit, and the environment suits themselves could repair, but not deflect, life-threatening damage from the exterior. I went to check the suit of the dead soldier, see if I could harvest the oxygen supply from their suit into my own. When I touched the controls on the arm of their suit, however, they jerked into life. The soldier coughed up blood into their face shield, clearly still suffering from the injuries they had received while in flight. They grabbed my arm and looked up at me, shock and fear painted on their face. They let go and reached down below their seat. With shaking hands, they retrieved a small container with a combination keypad on the front. They carefully keyed in the combination, and the case opened to reveal a pistol with a single loaded magazine next to it. More coughing and more blood hit the face mask, obscuring my view of the soldier's face. They motioned to take the pistol, which I took. My suit was equipped with a magnetic band for holding tools necessary for the repairs I was sent to make. I loaded the pistol and magnetized it to my hip. Looking back at the soldier, I nodded in confirmation that I had the weapon secured. My crewmate couldn't communicate with me, but their intention became clear immediately when they opened their arm control panel. They authorized an emergency opening of their face shield and exposed their unprotected body to the MLS environment. Their skin and blood froze almost instantly, and their breathing stopped. The suffering from this action may have been prolonged if not for their multiple existing injuries, injuries that likely were long past the point of treatment. I stood for a moment, coming to grips with what I just witnessed, mind racing on how I was going to proceed. I moved to the now deceased soldier's control panel, which was displaying a flat line on all vitals. I was able to retrieve a life support cell from the suit, which powers the systems capable of producing a suit environment humans could survive in. My suit harvested the remaining power, 
and I checked my oxygen level, 47%. A moment of relief was overshadowed by the feeling of dread that I had only postponed the inevitable fate of suffocation once my own suit depleted all available energy to sustain my body. I climbed out of the front viewport and out onto the surface of the MLS planet, surveying my surroundings, a reddish-gray landscape of sand and rock seemed to dominate. The shuttle had created a miles-long gouge out of the surface that went beyond my vision. Navigation systems on my suit were thankfully still functional, and I checked direction and distance from the facility. Thankfully, the automatic backup systems attempted to course-correct our crash landing to the closest company facility. Simple, but ingenious design that had the forethought to know that surviving the crash is pointless if I could never make it to a fresh supply of oxygen. I was within 20 miles, which was possible for me to travel under normal circumstances. The question was, will my current supply of oxygen last me, especially under the added strain of travel? There didn't seem to be an alternative decision. I needed to begin walking to the only option for survival. I started walking in the direction indicated by my control pad. I attempted to send communication to the facility, but remembered that their communications were down, waiting for me to arrive and fix them. I chuckled then, appreciating the morbid irony that accompanied this realization. As I pressed on, traversing the rocky hills and valleys of the alien world, I checked my distance. 17 miles, oxygen level 39%. I felt surreal looking at these metrics. Distance representing my salvation. Oxygen like my life slipping away, like sand slowly falling through the hourglass. While reflecting on this, a noise behind me made me stop in my tracks. A noise that should not exist in a planet like I was currently on. The sound almost like a rustling of leaves and branches. A snapping sound made me turn around suddenly. Nothing was there. I stood for a moment, staring off at the direction I heard the noise. Nothing was there. I checked my vitals. Maybe I took an injury to my head. Everything according to my vital sensors read normal, though. Feeling uneasy, but still determined, I pressed on. 13 miles, 32% oxygen. Night had fallen on the planet at this point, unable to see but for the lights above my face shield. I was focused heavily on the navigation provided on the display. Again, I was stopped dead in my tracks by a sound, a rustling sound, like something creeping up behind me. I turned quickly, shining the light of my helmet in the direction of the sound. Convinced now that I was not imagining this, I picked up the pace at the cost of more oxygen. The facility was seven miles away, but my oxygen supply at 22%. I was moving at a swift pace when suddenly my feet were swept out from underneath me. I fell hard onto the rocky surface, the screen of my face shield distorted by the impact. I rolled over, looking at what caused me to fall. And in that moment, I saw it, whatever it was making the noise. The sand in front of me seemed to move of its own accord. Limbs, no more like bones, seemed to slowly assemble before my eyes, raising themselves out of the sand. Legs, torso, arms, all seemed to slowly assemble out of the ground in front of me. The head came last, assembled from two larger pieces, making a sort of horned skull that peered down at me from the height of eight feet. 
its arms formed hands with elongated, sharpened tips to make claws. I let out a scream and started to run. The creature pursued, taking long strides, unimpeded by the rocky terrain that I had been struggling with all this time. I reached for the pistol on my belt and turned quickly to fire, shot after shot, a mixture of misses and bullets sparking off of bones that were made of something stronger than steel. The monster seemed to react briefly to the kinetic impacts, but continued to pursue. The pistol clicked to indicate that the firing pin could no longer find a primer. I was out of ammunition. The monster lunged then, and it swiped a claw hand at me, slicing open the front of my suit chest. A burst of gas was released from the sudden damage, which the suit hastened to seal. I turned and kept running, unsure of whether or not I was even headed in the right direction. Taking one step too many off a rock ledge, I stepped into air and began to tumble. I fell and rolled down a slope, unable to control the rate at which I was falling. I slammed at the bottom, feeling the wind knock out of my lungs. The only benefit to this was that I had momentarily lost the creature, which I could hear moving around, searching for me. Taking a moment to regain my breath, I reset my face shield display from the control panel. Five miles away, but the damage dealt by the monster had taken its toll, 12% oxygen remaining. A ledge of rock above me was concealing me from the monster, who was searching the upper level of this ridge for me. I crept carefully through this space, which continued to narrow. The path continued much longer than I expected. The walls of rock seemed to close in, making a sense of claustrophobia kick in. Another 300 feet into what was now a cave, I saw a new shape appear in the light of my helmet, something other than the jagged rock that permeated the cave. Checking my metrics again, I had made it no significant distance further, but my heavy, panicked breathing had resulted in my oxygen levels dropping to 5%. I was now facing a situation where I could no longer turn back. There was simply not enough oxygen to do so, never mind the monster searching for me around the entrance. I approached this new shape in my light cautiously. When my light had illuminated it well enough for me to perceive what it was, my jaw dropped in horror. I looked upon the remains of the other soldier from the shuttle. His body had been pulled apart. The ashes seemed to have been torn into the chest and arms of the suit, which were now sealed. His head was nearby, a look of sheer terror permanently affixed to his face as he undoubtedly met his end to this monster. Setting aside any feelings of grief for the loss of my fellow crew member, I searched for his main suit power. My only hope was that he had not used all of it and I could salvage it to give me more oxygen. The cave was dark and I searched frantically. 4% oxygen. I was unable to find the main control module. I tried proceeding a little further into the cave. 3% oxygen. Desperation setting in. I spun around wildly, praying I could find it. Then it was there. A reflection from my light on the control module came back to me. Dashing to it, I checked for a usable fuel cell. I pulled the component out as quickly as possible and attempted to integrate it with my own system. By some miracle, this moved my breathable air percentage to 12%. I checked my navigation. I could proceed through this cave to an exit another 500 feet down the tunnel. Full sprint now, going as quickly as I could to the exit out into the sand and rock again, not turning to see if I was being pursued. Two miles to go, 6% oxygen remaining. 
ignoring the pounding of my heart, the strain of every muscle in my body to proceed forward. Within a mile now, and I could see the facility in the coming light of the day. Ahead of me, the creature was forming again out of the sand, 2% oxygen. I couldn't stop, I had no hope of fighting it, and my air supply desperately low. It was coming after me though. I queried the control panel on my arm to open the doors of the facility. They responded, slowly opening at the command sent remotely. 1% oxygen. The creature swung a clawed hand at me and I dove head first into the facility door to avoid it. Issuing another command, I emergency closed the door. The creature tried to push its way inside, but too late. The weight of these doors was enough to stop it from keeping a space wide enough for it to fit through. Angry gnashing and snarls occurred on the outside as the frustrated monster clawed hopelessly at the facility entrance. My suit began to sound alarms. My oxygen supply was nearly depleted. I looked around frantically. I was in an airlock, which was always manned in a company facility. The posts where I would normally have expected a guard or two were completely empty, no lights illuminating the offices. Frantically, I issued a command inside the facility to pressurize this airlock with breathable air. My suit indicated that it had reached 0% oxygen supply. I tried to gasp for air, but I couldn't. I was suffocating in this environment suit, even after everything I had been through, eyesight going black. One of the last things I saw was the confirmation that the command was accepted. Air began flowing into the airlock, and I hit the emergency release on my helmet. Breathing in deep, the air generated by the facility. I was coughing and retching. My body was reeling from the near suffocation and the desperate flight from the monster outside. Stood up slowly, confusion again creeping in at the fact that this airlock was completely empty. This shouldn't be. I checked my control panel again, which confirmed I had an access level to this facility that allowed me to proceed through its main entryways. With apprehension weighing on me, I sent a command to open the other side of the airlock and allow me into the facility. The scene that greeted me behind the door was beyond anything I could imagine. Bodies of the facility workers were strewn all around the workstations that lined the walls and were affixed in rows along the floor. Large gashes had been torn into the walls and steel that made up the construction of this part of the facility. The realization set in that I had only escaped death momentarily, that I was condemned to this facility and whatever killed these people, yet a drive to continue on welled inside me, a will to survive even in the face of what is most certain failure. I checked my navigation module and located the problem energy cells in the facility that were inhibiting communications. This was my only hope, sending a distress call. I stepped forward into the horror, not knowing what I would encounter next. <laughs>